0: You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. The podcast shining a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between. I want to tell you all about a really awesome deal that I got from my friends and new sponsors, Adam and Eve, the number one adult toy superstore. They reached out to me and they said, Andrew, we love Disability After Dark. We love your show. We love what you're doing. And we were wondering if you wanted to run some ads for us. And I was like, fuck yes, I do. But what are my awesome listeners going to get if I run ads for you? What are they going to get out of this? And they came back with a really fantastic deal that I want to share with you right now. I hope you're getting comfy, cozy, and crippled because this deal is pretty great. If you go to AdamEve.com you can pick out almost any item in the store almost any one item in the store for 50% off. That means you can get one dildo, one lube, and one thing of lingerie if you want for 50% off. And then, once you get that one item for half price, they throw in even more free stuff. Let me tell you all about it. Okay, so you got your one item at half price in your bag and you're ready to go, but guess what? This offer also includes 10 free items on top of that, that other item. So you get one free item for penis havers. One free item for vulva havers. One free item for couples. And then, you also get six free movies from the AdamEve.com website. You can get your favorite porn or an educational film. I love free movies. They're so awesome. This is such a great deal. And then, on top of that, you also get free shipping. What could be better? This is such a great offer. So to redeem this great offer, what you're going to do is you're going to go to AdamEve.com. You're going to go to checkout and you're going to type in DarkPod. That's D-A-R-K. content and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. Thank you so much for clicking on this new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between. I'm, of course, Andrew Gerza, your number one disabled Dick Smith, your queer cripple, your meals on wheels, if you will, sex on wheels too, all those things, that's me, I'm your disability awareness consultant, and I'm here to get comfy, cozy, and cripple with you as we shine a bright light on all these things together, so let's do that right now. No major housekeeping things for today, just want to let you know that if you want to submit anything for a Minnesota or an episode idea, or... Any of those things, you can always submit to disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. I read all your emails personally. I'd love to hear from you. You can also follow us on the Tweety at disaftdarkpod, where I do a lot of polls to find out the kind of episodes you want to do. I really want to engage with you more, the listener, because this show is... Done by me in my bedroom, but it really is a labor of love for you, the listener. So, I want to really engage with you about that, and I want to find out what kind of shows would really be awesome for you to listen to. But, uh, thank you so much for the support, and let's get the episode started today. I've been thinking for a while now about doing a number of episodes on this show that center around explaining and uncovering certain disabilities what are they, where do they come from, how do they get discovered, what's their history, all that stuff. So many people ask us on the apps, on the dating apps, or in real life, when it comes to our disabilities, they'll they'll ask us, so like, hey, what's your condition? And we each of us have our own versions of how we might want to respond to that. Depending on who I'm talking to and where I am in my day, I might say something like, oh, you know, I have cerebral palsy, or... If it's a younger person that's asking me those questions, I might say like, oh, my legs don't work and I can't walk and I use a wheelchair. But typically when I respond to this question, wherever I am in my day, usually I'm pretty curt and I'm pretty short with them, not wanting to go into too much detail about my cerebral palsy and the kind that I live with and all the ways that that happens. Because when people ask the question, what's your condition? They usually want... A short, quick answer that they can attach themselves to, where the next thing they say is like, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I know somebody with that. They're really cool, or my cousin has it, or this kind of thing happens." And they they don't really want to go into a long-winded scientific explanation of what the condition is. They don't. They're not looking for that at all. They don't want that. They want something really quick for you to give them, so they can be like, "Yeah, my my friend Johnny has it for sure." But what I want to do on this episode today is I want to I want us to get ready because we're gonna go on a deep dive about about disability. We're gonna have that long-winded discussion about what these disabilities are. I want to give people who are listening a baseline understanding of what disa- of what disabilities might look like, how they might manifest, how they're researched, how they're medicalized, and how they can affect the people who live with them. I want to look at their histories and so much more. And specifically, I want to look at how they can affect our sexual lives as well because this is a, you know, a sex podcast. So I want to do that too. But I really felt it was important to give, to do the research and to give people that are listening who may not be disabled a baseline of things to to understand. And people who are disabled as well with different disabilities or who also have CP, um, just kind of like factoids about Disability. So, how we're going to structure these episodes? These episodes of the podcast are going to be called "What Is Your Condition," and then after "What's Your Condition," we're going to put like CP or muscular dystrophy or muscular sclerosis. We're gonna we're gonna do that with each with with these type of episodes, and then we're gonna do we're gonna do them in four different ways. We're gonna look at the common myths around each of these disabilities. Then we're gonna look into some some of the disabilities' fast facts. Then we're going to look at the history of the disability and how, how the disability has been historically understood or studied by people. Then we're going to look at. I had it all written down and I can't find the thing. Hang on. Then we're going to look at. Um, we're going to look at the how it is diagnosed through through the medical community and how that happens. We're going to then look at. Um, Prognosis of each disability. So, what is like the life expectancy, all those things, um, and the ways the disability can affect you throughout your life. We're going to look at then. We're going to look at how the disability affects your sex life, because again, it's a sex podcast, and that's I think that's a cool way to end each episode. So we're going to do that. And I want to make clear before I go any further, I am not a doctor. I am I am simply doing a goog. On each of these things and and finding the information where I can to put together a show. I am not, do not take anything I say as solid, sound medical advice. I'm just a dude with disabilities trying to share what I'm learning with you so that when you listen to these things and somebody has a disability we talk about, you might have a little bit more knowledge than you did before. That's simply what we're doing. I'm not doing this in any kind of like expert capacity. I'm simply sharing these. Knowledge Bites with you so we can learn about disability together. That's literally what's happening. Just so we're clear. So the first disability that I thought it would be good to explore is the one that I live with every day. I want to look at cerebral palsy. So let's do that right now. The first thing we're going to do is look at some common myths around CP. One of the biggest and most common myths around CP I can't say myth. myth, it's really hard for one of the biggest miz myth miz myth myth, myth myth. One of the biggest myths around C P is that people with cerebral palsy have mental this is the medical word, not mine, mental retardation or intellectual disabilities. And this is not always true. Another myth around people with CP is that people with CP cannot speak clearly or understand what people say and cannot follow directions. That's not always true, and we'll talk more about some of those things in a minute. Um, Another myth is that cerebral palsy is contagious, or you can get it from your family member with CP. That is not true at all. Um, another myth around cerebral palsy is that it cannot appear later in your life, so you must you must be diagnosed with it as a child, and that's not always true. Um, another big myth around CP is that it's treatable and curable. Um, CP is not curable because the disability itself is caused by irreversible brain damage, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, The disability itself is not treatable, but the symptoms of the disability can be treated. Another myth is that cerebral palsy is a degenerative disorder. I have many feelings on that thing. Technically, it's not a degenerative disorder. But I have some feelings on how the disability can change over time, which we'll certainly get to in other parts of this episode, so stay tuned for that um, in just a second. But yeah, those are some major myths that come with disability, with uh, cerebral palsy, rather. So, let's do some cerebral palsy fast facts first. Let's do some cerebral palsy fast facts. So fast fact number one, Wikipedia refers to cerebral palsy as a group of permanent movement disorders that appear in early childhood. Fast fact number two, cerebral palsy is the most common motor disability in childhood. Fast fact number three, cerebral palsy can be marked by stiff muscles, weak muscles, tremors, vision issues, seizures, gait issues, balance issues, Swallowing and regurgitation issues, etc. So there's a whole bundle of a group of of movement disorders and muscle disorders that can make up the umbrella term cerebral palsy. And in a lot of the research that I was doing for this episode, they they repeatedly referred to cerebral palsy as an umbrella term for a bunch of motor disabilities or permanent movement disorders. The next fast fact is that cerebral palsy can mean that people use, people with it can use things like walkers, wheelchairs, canes, have, a, have nothing at all but a, but a little bit of a limp or a gait thing, have speed, speech impediments, spasms, etc. So it can mean that you can use a mobility device, or you don't need one at all, or you need special assistance, all those things. And I I say that because cerebral palsy can look so variant, depending on who who, who you're talking with, who has it, so we need to be cognizant that everybody with cerebral palsy does not look the same. While there are similar markers for each disability, or each person with CP rather, Every person with CP does not look the same, but they d- we do often have similar markers, which we'll get to in a minute. According to Cerebral Palsy Australia, 17 million people worldwide live with cerebral palsy. That's amazing. Hey, my CP crew, 17 million of us, that's pretty cool. I kind of like that. Another CP fast fact, a person is more likely to have cerebral palsy if they are a twin. That's cool. I didn't know that when I was doing the research. When I saw that, I was like, wow, I've got to put that in. It's pretty awesome. And I, I do know a number of people who are twins who have CP. So I know it's definitely for real, for true. Another cerebral palsy fast fact that I thought was really important to put in, and it wasn't really in anything in any, like, fast facts that I could find, but I felt it was necessary to speak on it. Cerebral palsy is often billed and understood as a pediatric disability or a childhood disorder and is often rarely discussed in adulthood. That fucking sucks. We have to definitely talk about the aging process, NCP, because there's so sparse of a research area around that and, and because of advancements in medicine and just the way that our world is working, a lot of people with CP are living a full and vibrant life, and this means that also their care is going to change as they get older, and we need to talk about that, and a lot of the stuff that I looked at for this episode didn't really talk about cerebral palsy in adulthood, and that really kind of pissed me off when I was reading it, because I was like, I'm an adult, I want resources for me. A lot of it ended with, if your child has cerebral palsy, and I was like, well, great, your child with cerebral palsy is going to grow up, They also, we also need resources for that, and we'll talk a little bit about that throughout the episode, because there are a couple things in the research that really made me kind of annoyed, and I made some, like, quippy jokes about it, which you'll hear when I do that, so um, let's go into the history piece now. Okay, so cerebral palsy has been around since the beginning of humanity. The oldest likely physical evidence of cerebral palsy comes from an ancient pharaoh, Sipta, 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 S-I-P-T-A-H, who ruled in Egypt from 1196 to 1190 BCE, and in looking at pictures of this pharaoh, he had in his mummified kind of pictures that I saw on the Google, he had um, really pronounced gait issues with his with his feet. So he would kind of stand up on his tippy toes, and it looked like he had a lot of spasticity in his toes and his heels, and a lot of people with CP who who can walk have really tight, tight feet. So when you look at these mummified pictures, I was like, right away, I was like, oh yeah, he totally has CP. So he had issues of paralysis in his hands and legs, and he died at the age of 20, likely from cerebral palsy. The ancient Greeks discuss paralysis and weakness in the arms, and the work of Hippocrates outlines some, some kind of disability very similar to cerebral palsy in his work titled On the Sacred Disease. He talks about it a lot. So it's been around. The ancient Egyptians talk about it, the ancient Greeks talk about it. CP has been with us f- for some time now, which is kind of cool because it means that it's, it's, a, it's one of the natural parts of hum- the human condition. It's not this weird... You know, it's not something that we can vilify. It's been around for a very long time, and so I think that's kind of awesome. In the episode I did about... Me getting a new wheelchair, like about a, a probably about a like 105 or something. I joked about like the the wheelchairs throughout history, and I said that like we t- I kind of made a joke that because you know a lot of royalty used wheelchair esque type things that we're like those of us who use wheelchairs are like kings and queens, right? Well, it turns out that that royalty had cerebral palsy too because it turns out that that. An emperor was thought to have CP, and let me tell you all about him. It was. It turns out that Emperor Claudius, Emperor Tiberius Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, who who was emperor of was a Roman emperor from A.D. forty one to fifty four, was believed to live with cerebral palsy. So that's pretty awesome. We're those of us with CP can be queen, can be kings, queens, and emperors, bitch. That's pretty awesome. So bow down to those of us with CP, y'all, because apparently we're, you know, royalty. So, yeah. It was thought that Emperor Claudius's family thought that his cerebral palsy was a huge embarrassment to the family name and brought them a whole bunch of shame. So they didn't really talk about it much, but they weren't super jazzed that he had cerebral palsy. Another point in history where cerebral palsy was kind of looked into, medical historians have referenced possible depictions of cerebral palsy in in 16th century art, such as Giuseppe de Rivera's 1642 painting called The Clubfoot. Super nice, right? Just... That's just a cool name for a painting. Hey, did you did you see that painting, The Club Foot? Like, wow, it's so direct. So anyway, Giuseppe de Riberi's painting called The Club Foot depicted a boy with what looks like the typical markers of spastic cerebral palsy in the hands and feet. So it's a it's a picture of like somebody in period dress with kind of extended. They're on their tippy toes, which is a which is a big kind of marker for people who ambulate with CP. If you're on your tippy toes, it's if you're on your tippy toes, and your 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 feet are extended that way. You probably have CP, um, and his hands are also. People with CP with really tight hands are really kind of their hands are often like put into themselves if they have really tight spasms. So this picture depicts a boy with his feet on his tippy toes, and he's standing up, and he's he's holding something. I don't I can't remember if it's a rake or a gun, or he's holding something that looks like that, and his one hand is kind of turned in, and so if, if I saw him, I was immediately like, oh yeah, you for sure have CP, and I'll put a picture of that on the DisAft Dark Twitter, the DisAft Dark Pod Twitter, so you can look at it for yourself, but I thought that was really kind of cool, because this painting called The Clubfoot is currently housed in the Louvre in France, which is awesome, and then I was like, then I, as I was thinking about this, I, I realized that I would love to do a podcast episode about disability depictions in ancient art. Because, you know, ancient a lot of ancient art is, like, really sexy. And there's a lot of, like, nudity in these, art, in these artistic depictions of, like, gods and things and things from that era. So I'd love to see where disability is depicted in these kind of pictures. And I was like, ooh, write that down. So future Andrew, write that idea down. Let's do ancient... Depictions of disability in ancient art. Then I found a reference to possibly people with cerebral palsy in the Bi- in Bible stories. A lot of the beggars described in, in Bible stories would have would talk about having issues with walking and being kind of limping and having issues with with gait stuff. Really quickly, um, that's what I. Kind of so. I, so I saw a little thing that said that, and I was like, "Oh, that's cool." So you know, there were apostles with CP. Wow. Wow. Let me actually read you a passage from that where I found that. And so it says that it says that. Hang on. Uh, the Bible also makes frequent references of references to quote lame figures, some of whom may have had CP given their temporal associations. For example, Acts 3, 2, and 3, 7, and 8, written by the physician Luke, describe a beggar who had been a cripple from birth and who, when the apostle Peter grasped him by the right hand and pulled him up at once, his feet and ankles grew strong, he sprang up, stood on them, and started to walk. So yeah, there was some like, Jesus-saving-God stuff happening there, but it's cool to think that, that around the time that all those Bible stories were written, CP was something that was there, so it, it again shows that it's been with us from the beginning of time, and that's kind of awesome. Throughout the Middle Ages, many examples of children crippled since birth are found in the listings of Saints' Miracles. The They describe the d- divine cures of those who frequently defied medical intervention? One case from the early 14th century in Umbria, Italy, and I'm getting this again from the Encyclopedia of Disability. So, one case from early 14th century Umbria, Italy, says that those who f- says that no tells of. Hang on, let me start again. Ba mama. One case from early 14th century Umbria, Italy, tells of a boy Septus who had been learning to walk who had been learning to walk by ambulating on the sides of his feet, ow, because his ankles and feet had been twisted from birth. When he was about 10 years old, doctors having failed to heal him, took him on a pilgrimage to the tomb of St. Clair of Montal There he laid upon the tomb and suddenly he was cured. And oh my goodness, that's amazing. So there was a lot of discussions of people with CP who were cured by saints and all the stuff throughout the Middle Ages. And back to biblical times, so yeah, also there were things throughout history where the painter Raphael depicted pictures of a beggar with sufficient sufficient things to suggest he observed such figures with with cerebral palsy markers like the tight legs and all those things in Renaissance Italy. so again, just goes to show that. CP has been around for the ages. From everything I could find, our modern understanding of what cerebral palsy was didn't really come into focus until the 19th century. And that was the, the the real study of what cerebral palsy was and kind of discovering what it was came from William John Little, a British orthopedist, who had polio and Aquinas deformity himself, delivered a series of lectures at the Royal Orthopedic Hospital in 1843 where he described the aggregate clinical features of cerebral palsy. And by 1889 in Philadelphia, Sir William Osler published a small tome depicting a series of, of cerebral palsy cases. Osler focused on the pathology and... Neurological findings of the patients he saw, in effect, this approach characterized the medical view of cerebral palsy for the next century. And before William Osler called cerebral palsy cerebral palsy, it was actually referred to by William John Little's name, so it was called Little's disease for quite a long time. So a lot of people were said to not have cerebral palsy, it was called Little's disease. And um, then in 1889, William John Osler kind of called it cerebral palsy. And the way he did that was that he took um, he took the word cerebral, which is the Latin word for brain, and the word palsy, which is the Latin word for um, paralysis, and he put it together. So it basically is cerebral palsy, basically, is the paralysis of the of the brain. It should be noted that William Osler wrote a book called The Palsies of the Children, which, when I read that, I started laughing, because I was like, wow, that's a hilarious. Like, that's just a really funny title for a book. But he wrote a book called The Palsies of the Children, and this was widely used to understand CP at the time, and I thought, you know, someone should definitely write a sequel to that book, and they should call it The Palsies of the Adults, just to highlight the fact that cerebral palsy doesn't go away when you, like, leave childhood and you turn into adulthood, so somebody should definitely write a sequel called The Palsies of Adulthood or something. I'm down to write that if somebody wants to give me a book deal. I will write The Palsies of Adulthood. Along with coining the term cerebral palsy, William Osler also suggested that cerebral palsy was due to bleeding in the brain, and that can definitely be a cause of cerebral palsy for sure. Cerebral palsy at the time was often mistaken for polio, so a lot of people that had CP were often thought to have polio, and that wasn't the case just because of the way medicine was at the time. Um... Another famous doctor who weighed in on CP was Sigmund Freud, who disagreed with Willie Mosler and William John Little, who said and Freud said that cerebral palsy happened before birth, not during or after. And as we know now, cerebral palsy can happen before, during, or after birth. I think it's important to recognize, though, and a lot of this... I saw this a lot in a lot of the reading that I did for this. There is still so much about cerebral palsy that we don't understand both medically and societally, and we need to remember that when we look at the medicalization of all these disabilities. There's so much we don't know, and we need to do a lot more work with these disabled communities, particularly when we're talking about CP, talking to people with CP to see how it actually affects them. And I think Doctors and clinicians need to realize there's a lot they don't know, even now. Some, you know, 200 some years on, there's so much we still don't, we're still not aware of. Let's talk now a little bit about how cerebral palsy is diagnosed so we can get a better understanding of that a little bit. So, most people who live with cerebral palsy can be diagnosed based on their movements and their history within the first four months of age, although depending on the type of cerebral palsy and its presentation in the individual, like whether they, they had their, their like heads tilted to one side or they can't sit up a lot or you know they have tightness in their legs, their arms, depending on the presentation, um, diagnosis can be anywhere from from four months of age to five years of age, maybe even later in their life, all the way up to adulthood, some people very rarely, but some people with CP are not diagnosed with CP until they are in their adulthood, because it's so, it's so not marked that it's very rarely, what am I trying to say, it's so not seen that it's hard to make a diagnosis, but usually within the first four months up to five years, the person is diagnosed, um, some some hallmarks of cp are abnormal muscle tone delayed motor development and primit- primitive primitive refre- reflexes no 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 let me try again primitive reflexes this is the thing that i talk about all the time where i have a spasm and i throw things on the floor that's what it means and so when i was a kid my my family would scare me <laughs> would scare me all the time and i would i would jump out of my out of my chair and i would throw things like all the time and, and for instance this morning when I got up, I heard a dog barking in the, other, in the apartment across the way, and the dog barked really loud, and I jumped and I threw my juice across the room. So these kind of things can, can really affect somebody with CP, but primi- primitive reflexes, like reflexes that normally would go away after you are done being a baby, stick with people with CP all the time. I thought it was important to note when looking at diagnosis of CP, it is also considered to be a neurodevelopmental disability, and I think this is important to speak on because, and to say that cerebral palsy is technically a developmental disability, because I think it's important to dismantle the hierarchical idea that people with CP who have high cognition and who are quote-unquote high-functioning are somehow superior to those who, who are who are who may have other marked developmental disabilities because and I used to do this all the time with other people with different levels of cp I'd be like well at least I'm not like that person over there who can't you know speak the way that I can and I would I would kind of put this hierarchical idea in my head so I really I really liked seeing everywhere in the research that cerebral palsy is developmental disability and a neurodevelopmental disability. It also means that people with cerebral palsy are neurodiverse, and I think that's really, I just think that's really important, because it, it helps to break down this hierarchy of, well, if I can speak and think and talk, I'm somehow better than you, with CP over there who can't do that. I think it's important that we break down those barriers. With cerebral palsy, it was I found a lot of kind of things that said um, the age of people the age of a person when they are diagnosed is important as in it's important to diagnose early, but a lot of physicians disagree with how with how that looks and like with with, with what age you're supposed to diagnose C P. It is generally understood that the sooner the person gets diagnosed with cerebral palsy, the better, because it gives them a better chance at having resources for cerebral palsy. But some metabolic conditions can mimic can mimic cerebral palsy, so some doctors suggest that it, might be, it may be wise to wait on a diagnosis. Conversely, other life-threatening conditions can also mimic CP at first, so other doctors say that early diagnosis and detection is so you know what you're dealing with, and it's like, if you're a new parent trying to figure out, you know, what your young child, you, what your young preemie might have, which which school of thought do you listen to? I would say that early, the earlier you know the better, so you can know what kind of resources you need and how you can manage this. I, I think so, personally. Um, just a little personal background, I was diagnosed with cerebral palsy in, I believe... Pretty sure it was February of 1985 and about 10 months old. And I remember everybody told me that I had the classic signs of my head leaning to one side, I couldn't sit up by myself. And that was a pretty big marker for everybody around me that I had cerebral palsy. And they were like, yep, yeah, that's for sure what this kid has. Okay, so now I want to talk about how cerebral palsy is classified cerebral palsy is classified by th- by the types of motor impairments and or the limbs or organs that have been affected. And it's usually classified into three main types, and we're going to go over them right now. All right, so we've talked a little bit about, in this episode about spasms and how uh, having spasms where you jump a lot and having primitive reflexes are kind of a hallmark of CP. And just as I went to record this section, I had a spasm and I totally fucked up my little microphone in my audio studio when I kind of threw everything on the ground, so I had to pause for a minute and deal with that. But that's what happens when you have a primitive reflex thing with CP and you hear a noise that scares you or something happens. Your whole body can decide to, like, have a spasm and throw shit everywhere. That's what just happened here. So, yeah, the, the spasm part of CP is super real and it happens all the time. But let's get back to the three main types of the ways that CP is classified. So the first classification for th- for CP and the first type that we're going to look at is spastic cerebral palsy or sometimes called cerebral palsy where spasticity is the exclusive or almost the exclusive impairment present and it is by far the most common type of cerebral palsy occurring in upwards of of all cases of CP, spasticity is present. So, pretty much if you you meet somebody with CP, they're probably going to have some level of spasticity there. People with this level of CP, spastic CP, are what the research calls hypertonic rather than hypotonic, which means that they're tight and they're, they're more tight than they are, flopsy and, and they like they, they're not paralyzed. And the, some people with CP that we'll talk about will have another type that makes them more flopsy and relaxed. And I think having having a spastic CP makes a lot of things for the individual, not necessarily better, but more functional. So that's why a lot of us a lot of us again I don't want to I don't want to feed into the hierarchical hierarchical thing of it but I think having spastic CP just makes a lot of tasks easier for a lot of people. People with spastic CP might also have issues with arthritis and tendinitis in their mid 20s and early 30s. I definitely have arthritis. I went to the doctor one day, and she was like, "Oh yeah, you have um, you have arthritis in your hands and your and your uh, your thumbs and all that stuff." And so it does happen to a lot of us, especially those of us who have more spasticity in our upper or lower limbs. We can definitely uh, have a lot of pain and that kind of stuff that can happen as we age. A lot of people who have spastic CP and really really intense tightness. Are also offered um, back living, which is like a botulin toxin, which they can put it in. Um, they can give you like a pump in your back to pump this drug to make you more relaxed. I've always been wary of that because I have some. I know some people who have that, and it's been real. They like they have the pump, and they're more relaxed, but then they're they're unable to do a lot of stuff. And if if I want to get down with a lover and I have this pump in me that makes me more relaxed. What if I hit it, what if I hit it and then I can't have the spasm to like, or be be tight enough to, um, you know, jerk off my lover or to make it over the lover? What if it affects my ability to move around? So I think that we have to be very careful when we offer these solutions to people with spastic CP. And also they have to put this like thing in your back that's like your backlevin pump, and it just, I've heard about it through my kind of youth and adulthood, and it always scared me a little bit. It always made me a little bit wary. I found another stat that was like 86% of people with spastic, or 86% of people with CP have CP, or, well, let me try, 86% of people with CP have spastic CP, so the ch- it's variant from upwards of 70 to 86. So the chances are, if you meet somebody with CP, they probably have some level of spasticity in there. It's important to think of that. But let's look at some other ways CP is classified. Just before we do that, and for reference, I live with spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy. So I am one of the ones that has spastic CP for sure. And I'm I know that I've mentioned that on the show before, but since we're looking at the classifications just to give you context, I definitely have spastic CP. The next type of cerebral palsy classification out there is called ataxic cerebral palsy and this is generally observed in approximately, and again I'm getting these facts from the Goog, approximately 5-10% to of all cases of cerebral palsy, making ataxic cerebral palsy the least frequent form of the condition. Ataxic cerebral palsy is caused by damage to the cerebral structures, and because of the damage to the cerebellum, there's a lot of issues with, with um, coordination, specifically in the arms, legs, and the trunk. The hallmarks of ataxic cerebral palsy is that it is known to decrease muscle tone, and the most common manifestation of a toxic cp is intention or action tremors, which make themselves known when somebody is apparently carrying out a precise, really fine movement, such as tying shoes, you know, writing with a pencil, possibly jerking off their partner. They may have really... they may have visible tremors in trying to complete this task and that's kind of a, a sign of ataxic cp and with this shaking with ataxic cp as you you get closer to doing the task the shaking can persist and get worse and worse so i can imagine for those of us living with ataxic cp who are who want to jerk off themselves or or mess around with the partner or be sexual, I can imagine how frustrating and how annoying it could be to try to be sexual with somebody and not be able to because of the, the consistent tremors. And I can imagine what that might do to your self-esteem or your sexual competence. The next and biggest final classification Not biggest, but the final classification of CP that I found was the... Dyskinetic or athetoid cerebral palsy, which is marked by involuntary movements and a lot of unusual twisting movements. And about 6% of people with CP have this kind of twisty... It's very... It it sounds very similar to ataxic CP, but there's more twisting and kind of more, like, musculature twisting and that kind of stuff. So, um... 6% 6% of people with CP have the CP. Uh, and then after dyskinetic or athetoid CP, um, there's mixed CP. So you can have spastic CP with athetoid stuff or dyskinetic CP with um, ataxic CP. All those things can be mixed together. So I think a lot of us ha- probably have a mixed Version of CP, but primarily the doctors look at like what's the prominent symptom, and if it's if it's spastic, then that's what they go by. But I'm I'm willing to bet because there's a lot of parts of cerebral palsy that we don't know. I'm pretty sure that a lot of us with CP probably have some mixed type. Okay, so now we're gonna look at the prognosis of CP more generally, and just kind of talk about. CP and its prognosis and what that might look like for somebody with CP. So, the prognosis for CP, much of what I read about cerebral palsy, as I've said kind of throughout this episode, is that the, prog- the progression of CP and the prognosis of CP highlights that it is not progressive, which really just means that the brain injury sustained before, during, or after birth does not usually increase over time. But that was really misleading for me growing up because I thought that meant my disability wouldn't change and I would constantly tell people like, hey, oh no, my disability is not going to get better or worse. What I didn't realize though was that as I aged, the symptomology of my disability would change. My spasms would get more intense. My muscles would get more sore. I would have issues with sleep. All of these things are things that happen with CP as you age, and they don't really talk to you about that when you're coming up with CP, or at least they did not in my case. So I think if you are a parent of somebody with cerebral palsy, today you might want to talk about these things with the doctor about how, when they get older, how the disability might manifest differently than when it does when your child is a child. Because as I, as I get older, I see a lot of changes, things like, you know, the inability to pee, and high, just higher levels of tightness and spasticity in my case. Um, the other things I read about prognosis were that people with CP can also have learning disabilities and issues with processing and understanding. So a lot of stuff with like mathematics and numbers and stuff can be issues for people with CP. It certainly was for me coming up. But also, according to the research, a lot of people with CP can have higher... Levels of intelligence and higher levels of geniuses can happen with CP, so that's kind of cool. So if you meet somebody with CP, they might be super duper smart, or they could just be average, and that's cool too. A lot of people with cerebral palsy will have issues with spatial awareness. I mean, holy fuck, don't ask me to make a three-point turn, because I will not know what you're asking me, and I'll be super bad at it, and I will probably bang into everything. Don't ask me to go somewhere where it's really tight space because I'll say, oh, yeah, there's room, and I'll totally, like, fuck everything up. Ask my mom. There are so many holes in my walls in my childhood home where I grew up because I would just bang into the wall everywhere. There were many times where I fell down the stairs when I... Not, like, big stairs, but when I was in high school at 14, I was trying to, like, talk to friends or make friends or get in, get in the way of somewhere, in my chair... I didn't look properly in my chair like hit a snag on one of these tiny little staircases that goes down to somewhere and I totally fell down the stairs and hit my head. So I have really the shittiest sense of um, spatial awareness really I do probably going on a date with me might end in a in an ambulance ride cool cool and that that's why if I'm ever asked to go on a date and you and you say to me like, hey, just go north on this road and then turn south here, I'll get super confused and I'll probably get lost and we'll never have that date. And I'm pretty sure we talked about my lack of understanding about how directions work in our dating, disability, and driving episode, so go back and have a listen to that, because that's a good one too. But everything I saw about cerebral palsy also meant, also said that um, that uh, you would live a relatively normal life expectancy. So I, I've talked to individuals who listen to this show who are in their 80s with CP, which is something I never really considered. And to be honest with you, I kind of thought that I would be done and finish with the world around 60, 65. And so the fact that I could live to 80 or, you know, past that with CP is kind of awesome. And so to know that I can have a quote-unquote normal life expectancy with this disability is cool, but it also depends on, like, the type of CP you have and the level of therapy you get and all those things that, um, all those, all those things play a role. Also, the way you may or may not be properly receiving medical care because hospitals are trash can also affect all these things. So, if you're somebody with CP, just make sure you have a really good relationship with your doctor, which I know could not be easy because sometimes the medical community is super ableist and weird. I know that's tough, but, Try to have a good relationship with them, and uh, then you can get all these things like pain and things under control. But generally, we will all of us with CP be living a long and healthy life. Okay, so now I want to move into how cerebral palsy can affect your sex life. I read a lot of stuff online that said the puberty for people with cerebral palsy can be early or delayed. In some cases, with People with CP. According to Wikipedia, there's no evidence to suggest that cerebral palsy plays a role in fertility, performance, etc. But secondary issues like spasms can certainly play a role. Um, and it's important for any lovers, any future lovers of Andrew, to know that if you get in bed with me, I probably will accidentally have a spasm and punch you in the balls at some point. So prepare yourselves for that sexy time, hey? Um, Some of the other things that how CP can affect your sex life is the trembling. Like we talked about with ataxic cerebral palsy, if you have that condition or you you have more tightness, it might be hard for you to engage in certain sex acts because of the way your body moves and because of all the twisting and stuff like that. A lot of people with CP, myself included, I notice have a lot of pelvic floor issues, issues with um, urinary incontinence. Stuff like that. I also read that some men with cerebral palsy or people with penises can have, and I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right cryptorchidism at 21, which is a lack of testicles in the scrotum or a lack of the testes are in there but they don't drop or something. So sometimes that can happen due to being born prematurely. I also read that a lot of women or people with vulvas who also have cerebral palsy have trouble receiving accurate gynecological exams due to spasticity and a lot of people have to be put to sleep to receive these examinations because of their tightness. Um, I really wish we could find better ways to make these kind of medical examinations more accessible so that everybody can receive proper sexual health care. I would say some of the ways that has cerebral palsy affects my sex life, and I'm sure I've said this before, issues with fine motor skills. I talk a lot about how, you know, I can I can give you a broad slap on the ass, but I can't finally, like, grab your body. And, you know, I I can really do broad movements, like big, sweeping, sexy touches of your chest and or your, your body and stuff like that, but I can't do more fine stuff. So that can be frustrating if I really want to be Like, if I really wanted to be specific with the body part of of a partner, I can't really do that. I have to be more broad with their whole body, generally. A lot of the articles I read around sexuality and disability really spoke to how cerebral palsy can affect our self-esteem and the way we see ourselves sexually, and I would tend to agree with that. Um, That's the way I see my body. certainly affects how I feel as a sexual being, especially as somebody with CP, because... Again, like I said at the beginning, people will say, oh yeah, my friend has that, oh yeah, so-and-so has that, but they have no real idea how that manifests, and that can be really uncomfortable when you're in the room with somebody and you need to explain all these things to somebody. That can, be, that can certainly not be super fun. Um, but those are some of the ways that CP affects your sex life um, and can affect sexuality, And uh, that's pretty much all I got for the CP, and I really loved doing um, this little kind of deep dive into what cerebral palsy is, where it comes from, its history. That was really fun. I want to do other disabilities. I want to do things like like multiple sclerosis. I want to do things like muscular dystrophy. I want to do things like Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. If you want to hear me do a specific disability, um, then let me know. Send us an email at disabilityafterdark@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And I want to do a deep dive into the history of these things because I think it's important. And I hope for those of you listening, it gave you a baseline understanding of what CP is and how it manifests and how it could manifest. Um, it was really fun to do and I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, this has been another episode of Disability After Dark. Thanks so much for listening, friends. Bye! All right, friends, that's another episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between. I've been your host, Andrew Gerza. Thank you so much for listening and coming back each week. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to www.andrewgerza.com. The website definitely needs an update, but there you can find my blogs, some of the videos I've been in, some of the... Talks I've done. You can also book me to come to your event and shine a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between at your next event. You can do that there through andrewgerza.com. You can follow me on all my social media at It's Andrew Gerza. That's I-T-S Andrew Gerza, So I-T-S-A-N-D-R-E-W-G-U-R-Z-A. I know I've changed them a bunch over the last few weeks, but this one's going to stick. So It's Andrew Gerza on Insta, Facebook, and Twitter. Um all the places to follow me you can follow the podcast specifically at DisAftDarkPod Dark Pod on Twitter. Uh, we do have a Disability After Dark Facebook page which you can follow at facebook.com/disabilityafterdark. Um but I do most of the of the awareness stuff for the podcast on Twitter at DisAftDarkPod. Dark Pod. There I do a lot of polls to find out what kind of episodes you want. I ask a lot of questions to find out to get guests. I ask, what kind of things around disability do you want to hear? So make sure to follow us there as well. Um, yeah, that's the show, and thank you so much for coming back to listen. If you want to, again, if you want to support the show, patreon.com disabilityafterdark. You can pledge at whatever level you're able to, but $1 a month and $5 a month gets you the perks, which is the show one day early, ad-free, and a, a special shout-out for me, as well on an episode thanking you for your contribution to keep programs like this up and running, and I would really appreciate your support. Also, please leave a review on Apple Music or wherever you get your podcast, so the shows like this can actually get recognition, and shows around disability, which are so sparse in our media landscape, can actually get re- recognized. So let people know you love the show, and I would really, really appreciate it. But, uh, that's it for today. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Cripple Content Creations, with music by Chris Sujugi. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music, are property of the owner and cannot be distributed or used without express permission. Copyright 2020.